0: In the post-colonial New World Order, being a member of a nation in possession of territorial sovereignty is the thing to become. It is an aspiration, moreover, that cannot be named as such, for to be convincing, it must not be seen as an invention, but as an inheritance. I'm Nandita Sharma.
3: I'm Jochen Schmon.
0: I am Daran Altash.
2: As is often the case with books that we interview for the New Books Network, I wanted to start by asking you, what are the origins of this book, and how it is is it related to the kinds of questions you are asking in your first book, Home Economics, Nationalism, and the Making of Migrant Workers in Canada?
0: Yeah, thank you for that question, because I do think that there is a link between the two books, and I think that link for me is a political link. Um, I've been quite, uh, you know, I've been uh, um, looking at and experiencing racism for a very long time, um, but one of the, the things that I find very interesting is that even though racism is very clearly identified as a major source and a major cause of a great deal of violence, of discrimination, of You know, all kinds of psychic harms, et cetera. Nationalism is not. Um, And so I was, you know, very concerned in both books to put nationalism on the table as also a way of thinking and a way of uh, acting in the world that is also incredibly violent and harmful.
3: The Bruegel painting, The Tower of Babel, is on the cover of your home rule, and you start your book by recounting the biblical story. Why do you choose this cover and story for your book?
0: I chose it because um I felt that I that the story needed a retelling <laughs> that instead of the idea that the problem according to the Bible was that people spoke too many languages that they were too different from one another that actually the problem was that um efforts by rulers to make them all the same, right? To, uh, and, and also to problematize not the people who were building the tower, but the person who tore the tower down, which is, you know, in the Bible, this patriarchal God. Um, and I really liked the story as one of builders trying to build their own heaven on earth Rather than waiting for some metaphysical transcendence into God's heaven. And so I kind of I felt that that is precisely what I see um, people who are, you know, trying to build a better world today doing and then being put down and their efforts being destroyed uh, by would-be Lords. And so I wanted to equate, you know the new religion of nationalism to the old religion of the of the gods that command uh, that we relate to one another in very particular ways, if that makes sense
3: <laughs> yeah um like why why do you see nationalism as like a new form of religion and not like it is like mostly being posed as a secular political imaginary?
0: I think it's uh I'm not the first one to say that um. You know the the idea that nationalism is the is the new religion uh, after this kind of enlightenment shift to secularism is is an old idea. Uh, but I see it as a religion in part because it is a faith, right? Um, people treat their membership in a nation as a matter of faith and treat their sense of a national community. As, as a holy community that should not be um, polluted by outsiders, right? So pollution is a major kind of trope in many religions. Uh, I, I was um, born into Hinduism and, uh, you know, pollution is a major organizer of Hinduism as a belief system. And I think that nationalism is is uh, perhaps even more so, right? This idea that we have the right to enact whatever practice we wish to enact against those who are outsiders, foreigners who are polluting the body politic of the nation uh, is an enormous source of violence, uh, but is again, uh, in relationship to the first question you asked me, completely legitimized, right? There's hardly anyone on the in the world that sees nationalism full stop uh, you know, Not just right-wing nationalism, not just extremism, not just white nationalism, but all nationalisms. It's very difficult to find people who will just simply acknowledge that all nationalisms produce violence against those who can be constructed as outsiders.
2: To uh, sort of get into the meat of your argument... Uh, we want to continue by asking you about this notion of the post-colonial New World Order, which is um, how you conceptualize the reorganization of the global political community following World War II. And uh, you also gesture at the fact that its seeds were sown already in the 19th century with the sort of reorganization of imperial rule from direct to indirect uh, colonialism. Um, First, we want to ask you how you define post-colonial New World Order.
0: So the post-colonial New World Order for me is a world of nation states, uh, which came about um, uh, in the post-World War II era and um, was in place by the 1960s, when former colonies uh, across Asia and Africa um, also achieved their so-called independence. And when the former metropoles of uh, some of the largest empires entering World War II, namely the British Empire and the French Empire, also nationalized their sovereignty, the sovereignty of their metropoles. Uh, So the post-colonial New World Order was um, in place once the um, political organization of the world uh, and all of the people in it was through the institution of the nation state and maybe if i could add something there so the post like uh the reason that i wanted to name it this awkward thing uh is to counter two two dominant ways of understanding our current political system one is that we are still in a system of imperialism or some people would say neo-imperialism or neo-colonialism so i wanted to counter that by saying that it is important for us to not simply kind of extend the analysis that we had of imperial states, right, the, um, the various empires uh, that collapsed after World War II um, or earlier, um, but that we actually needed to take into account the specificities and the various ways uh, that people are ruled over by the national form of state sovereignty, that that was a really important thing to pay attention to, that I think that that uh, a kind of clear distinction is often not made in political theorizing. And the second reason I wanted to call it the post-colonial new world order was to challenge the idea that there is no such thing as post-colonialism. So it's kind of related to the first thing that we're still in some kind of imperial colonial phase. Um So I wanted to point out that post-colonialism does not mean and should not ever be mistaken for decolonization, that post-colonialism is an order of rule, right? It's an epistemic order that is governed by nationalism, right, that complete and utter legitimacy that most people um, ascribe to nationalism, Um, but also that it is uh, a, a system of rule that is meant to contain aspirations to decolonization, right? That post-colonialism was a system of rule that was put into place, a system of national sovereignties that was put into place precisely to destroy the anti-colonial project.
2: Yeah, this is um this is a forceful like segue to how you write about the impact of the transition into indirect rule specifically after the 1857 rebellion in India and how um, this was sort of generative of these categories of indigenous natives and migrant natives, which then we see radicalizing right over the next 50 to 80 years. Um, that your story takes us. Could you um, explicate a bit more how these categories of indigenous natives and migrant natives are coming out at this moment of uh, transition from direct to indirect rule?
0: Yeah, so I um, learned a lot about this from the work of Mahmood Mamdani. So uh, I, I am uh, uh, learning from his analysis in this respect. Um, so I definitely want to acknowledge him. Uh, so the 19 sorry the 18 1857 Indian Rebellion, also known as the British Mutiny uh, in the British colony of India, um, was an important kind of watershed moment in the way that imperial states governed uh, those that they colonized. That of course they named anywhere in the world natives. Right, natives was an imperial state category. Uh, used to identify and define those who were subjects of the colonies, and native came about in uh, as this you know negative half of a duality in which European was the was the dominant half, right? Um, by 1857, right? This you know the, the this is uh, you know imperialism is well established, you know various. Empires with their metropoles in Europe are spread across the world. You know, 1857 was a moment in which a, a massive rebellion that the British Empire seriously believed could signal the end of not only its control over British India, but possibly over the empire, right? Possibly lose its empire. Because, you know, just as a segue, what's really interesting is how. Um, ideas, anti-colonial, anti-imperial ideas circulated across imperial spaces and even across different empires. So imperial rulers were well aware that what, what, whatever was happening in British India would soon find its way into other British colonies, into other colonies, period, right? So there was always this kind of global circuit that uh, empires were aware of. And tried to counter. So they really wanted desperately to put down the Indian rebellion and um, the way that they, I mean, they did so um, militarily, um, but the way that they wanted to uh, prevent um, other you know, possible events arising that could uh, uh, potentially threaten the entire empire was to say, okay, we've got these natives, right? These natives of India in this case, but it's spread to other places, other colonies in the world. We've got these natives in India. They're coming together and they're trying to overthrow us. So let's figure out a way to ensure that they uh, destroy themselves before they destroy us. And one of the ways of doing that was to create ever finer categories of the native. So the native was already an imperial state category. Let's try and create even finer distinctions um, so that people identify with ever smaller and smaller groupings, right? Because native of British India, right, was a potentially large category through which to mobilize against the empire. So let's get smaller and smaller categorizations of people. And so um, the, the the idea of native itself has already had a kind of territorialized dimension, right? These are the native's of British India as to be distinguished from the natives of Jamaica, right? The natives of Canada, et cetera, et cetera. So there was already kind of territorialized dimension to defining these people, obviously, in new ways. People didn't define themselves like that prior to colonialism. So what they decided is that there's going to, you know, we're going to see that some natives are actually indigenous natives, right? And what they meant by that was, what uh, political philosophers from Aristotle onwards imagined when they imagined indigeneity or autochthony, which was literally, you know, the people who sprung from the earth, right? Like literally were rooted, grounded, you know, philosophically as well as metaphysically in this particular territory, right? Right. And so that those were the groups that they uh, identified as indigenous natives, and then there was, you know, there's all these other people who are natives uh, of British India, but were defined as migrant natives because they were seen as either having physically moved from somewhere else, and you know, this is part of the imperial imagination. This is this is not part of the imagination of the people that are being defined as such uh, until much later. Either they, you know, the British Empire would say either they've moved from somewhere else into the territories that they're now living in, which, quote unquote, is the territory of indigenous natives, even though we, the British Empire, are controlling it, Um, or else there's some aspect of their culture, perhaps their religion, perhaps they're Muslim uh, in British India. So they're kind of outsiders. So they're natives of the British Empire of uh, the of British of the colony of British India, but they're migrant natives, right? They're not as indigenous as the indigenous natives. So um, it was a shift in, uh, you know, the shift was instigated by the desire to keep the empire in place, but the shift was a major shift in how imperial imperial states ruled, and the shift was primarily this. Um now imperial rule was no longer about bringing civilization to the natives, right? We need to, we need to uh, uh, create them in the mold of the bourgeois European subject, right? We need to have them be uh, secular and we need to have them be um, uh, learned in particular kinds of schools of thought. And, you know, we need them to speak... Uh, the imperial language, et cetera, et cetera. Now, with indirect rule, there was like, oh, we need to uphold the histories and traditions and cultures of the native, of in particular the indigenous natives, right? And this was, you know, I know this is a very long answer, but this was in part response to the, imp- the impetus for the Indian rebellion, which was a feeling of the colonized that their dignity, that their way of life was not being respected by the imperial state. So the imperial state said, aha, you want us to respect you? You want us to respect your culture and dignify it uh, as worthy of existing? Aha, now we're going to rule you through culture, your traditions, your customs, um, your religions, uh, uh. And so that was a you know, nice, tricky move by the imperial state to say, okay, we're going to give you what you want so you stop rebelling, but we're going to do so in such a way that is um, going to divide you from others, make you less potent of a threat, and make sure that whenever we supposedly respect you, we do so in a way that ensures your continued um, subjection under imperial rule.
3: Thank you that was great. Um like we wanted to jump now also like into like more into the 20th century and like in which you are also focusing in your book. Um and wanted to ask you about like the kind of like making of that uh, post-colonial new world order also like based on like the dominant um nations um that were actually involved in that very making. And we were interested in the question um, how you see the role of capitalism search for new markets for land, labor and commodities, especially in the US government support for decolonization, which was exclusively um, posed in terms of national self-determination, a term that you are very very critical of, um, which was like beginning as you were saying like during the world, first world war, but specifically like accumulating in its aftermath, um, and specifically, and also like in the interwar and, and World War Two period. Right.
0: So you know, the League of Nations that was formed after World War One famously said um, that they were going to recognize national self determination. Of course, only for those people who they believed could organize themselves into nations, right? And and in that regard, they did not believe that most of the people in the colonies of the empires had any such right because they were you know, supposedly too primitive to ever be considered nations, right? They were tribes, they were clans, you know, it's, you know, bands, et cetera, you know, nomads, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't nations. Uh, and that was interesting because I think it actually spurred on nationalisms in the colonies, right? So, you know, so this this kind of very reactionary Uh, response which is yes we are nations yes yes we are advanced enough to be nations instead of going like what is this bullshit of this nation that you think is the highest form of life on the planet it's you know instead of rejecting that and you know making some other demands which of course many people in the colonies did but the dominant form of anti-colonialism in that interwar period between world war one and two was nationalism right and so um, President Roosevelt uh, famously championed national self-determination, not just for people within Europe or, you know, the, um, the, the former British white settler colonies like the United States, but for everyone, right? Um, and what I argue in the book is that this was not a principled stance. This was not like, oh, my God, colonialism is so awful, it harms so many people. It's destroying people's lives. We're immiserating them, impoverishing them, you know, making sure that they die young. No, you know, his, his, um, support for national self-determination for quote unquote, all people, including those in the former colonies was the simple recognition that for capital based in the United States to expand, um, you know, in terms of its operations, in terms of its source of labor, as well as its markets uh, for commodities, for finished products, etc., depended on the dissolution of empires, because empires were, of course, an economic system as well, right? And they were closed economic systems. So, you know, capital based in New York City is not going to be able to exploit the labor of people in the British Empire, or you know, or um, enter into those markets uh, uh, for commodities and other things. So they needed to abolish this kind of closed imperial system, and the way of doing that, I argue in in Home Rule, is by uh, advancing the supposed independence and national sovereignty of the colonized. So again, uh, delinking post-colonialism from decolonization, the United States was a big champion of the post-colonial New World Order precisely because it made capital in the United States much more mobile. And we can see the consequences of that you know, uh, uh, very shortly after uh, the enshrinement of national self-determination for all people in the United Nations um, op- you know founding charter in 1949
2: absolutely um this kind of brings us to what we wanted to ask you next about the Bretton Woods agreement of 1944 right the institutions that came out of it kind of became the backbone of this post uh, colonial new world order. Could you explain a bit more how um yeah, Bretton Woods created this post-colonial new world order?
0: Yeah, so the Bretton Woods institutions, it's important to note, were created before the end of World War II, right? Uh, and it was you know the United Nations was initially a term that was coined by pres U.S. President Roosevelt. Uh, for the Allied powers in World War II, right? They were the quote-unquote United Nations. So it's very telling that this institution of the United Nations that we have post-1949 is definitely um, operating in the framework of um, the Allied powers' uh, uh, interests. Uh, So at Bretton Woods, What had already happened, and this is relating to the earlier question, what had already happened by 1944 is President Roosevelt was able to get British Prime Minister Winston Churchill to sign an agreement called the Atlantic Charter in 1941, saying that after the end of the war, the colonies would be granted self-determination, right? And Churchill fought this because, of course, that's the end of the empire, Uh, but he was kind of forced to do so by Roosevelt in 1941 because the U.S. was not yet militarily involved in World War II. London is being bombed by the Nazis. Uh, France is already occupied, right? It looks like uh, Nazi Germany may, may become the victor in World War II. So Churchill, desperate for U.S. Financial and hopefully military support signed the Atlantic Charter and said, Yes, you know, we agree that all people should be nationally self determinate. So by 1944, when they meet in New Hampshire at Bretton Woods, um, that's already in place. That understanding is in place, right? That after the end of World War II, we're going to have a new world order, right? It's no longer going to be an imperial world order, it's going to be a post colonial new world order of nation states. And so, institutions were formed, like the World Bank, uh, mm-hmm. like the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the you know um, very shortly after uh, GATT, the General Agreement on Trades and Tariffs, which became the World Trade Organization, the WTO, in 1995. Um, so, each of these three major institutions of Bretton Woods were institutions designed to put a financial vice grip on mm-hmm. so-called independent national sovereigns, right? That if anyone needed financial assistance, like financial um, credit, if you wanted to get credit um, from international markets, from either private banks, and now you've got these kind of international banks like the World Bank, and uh, the IMF is also a source of financing, um, you had to follow their dictates. And though institutions were put into place so that the the um, cont- the people the the nation states that contributed the most to the operation of the institutions would have the greater share of the votes. It's like shareholders, right? So nation states mm-hmm. were shareholders according to how much they con- financially contributed. So of course, this benefited the richer states, um, and especially the United States. Um, So these institutions were put into place to ensure uh, the post-colonial new world order, right? That you can have your political sovereignty, you can have your national sovereignty, but you're still part of an international capitalist system in which the interests of capital are always going to be dominant. Uh, And so no nation state including the most powerful, including the United States, were sovereign in the sense that they were autonomous, that they were independent of dictates. Uh, even the most powerful states, and certainly all of the you know, least powerful states, were absolutely controlled by these institutions. Being native, once the denigrated other to the colonizer has, in the post-colonial New World Order, become the quintessential criterion for being a member of the nation. Migrants, unable to cross the racialized boundary of nativeness, at least in the places they actually live, and unable to organize themselves into a nation, remain out of place.
3: So you are also like really like stressing the whole like role of capitalism in like this like making of the uh post-colonial new world order and also like as like an inherent kind of dimension of nationalism in fact and what we wanted to ask you is um in which way do like socialist and like decidedly non-capitalist states like play into this like whole uh image because like we think that could be like a challenge you know like to uh, post-colonial new world order,
0: right? Yeah. So um, I've learned a lot from James Scott's work in this area, and so uh, and I agree with the general tenor of his arguments uh, that uh, um, that the so the socialist states. Uh, cannot be seen as actually creating socialist societies, right? That they instead created uh, incredibly authoritarian models of governance um, that were actually designed to integrate them in particular ways into the global capitalist economy, right? That they were not ever outside of the global capitalist economy, but they were... um, you know, as Tony Cliff famously said in the 1970s, forms of state capitalism, right? The state is the owner of the means of production. They are the ones who are exploiting the labor of the proletariat, right? The proletariat has, there is no democratization of the means of production. There's no democratization of political um, uh, or social um, organization. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no, um, uh, overturning of alienation in socialist states, so called socialist states, right? That uh, precisely because they took, because socialism took the st- a state form, uh, it was inherently about ruling over people. And, and in particular, socialist states follow the model of nationalism, right? Most famously, of course, by Stalin, right? Stalin. Uh, destroyed any illusions that socialism could be international uh, by declaring, you know, that you could have socialism in one country in 1922, right? That we don't need to have, uh, you know, workers of the world unite, we just need the workers of the nation to follow the dictates of the state, right? Um, So, I, I don't think that the socialist states you know the former Soviet Union obviously the current People's Republic of China or Cuba or any of those could po- possibly in any honest uh, way be classified as socialist.
2: Thank you for that I have a quick follow-up to um, to this question just to ask you how do you understand the challenge that? the communist states were opposing to the United States and the sort of project of the like exportation of capitalist modes of production in this rapidly decolonizing world. How did that political rivalry shape the form that the post-colonial New World Order took, right? Rather than thinking about how yeah. you understood me, so I'm going to stop trailing. <laughs>
0: No, 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 no. I, I, I think I know where you're going, which is, you know, the Cold War was a very, very important facet of the post-colonial New World Order, right? And, and new Cold Wars are currently being organized. Um, but one thing I would say is that uh, the former Soviet Union um, was seen by some uh, uh, newly sovereign states in, the, in Asia, in Africa, in the Americas. Uh, as um, an alternative to the hegemony of, you know, the kind of uh, Anglo-European uh, states. Um, but again, I would say that it was not an alternative to capitalism, right? That it was an alternative source of finance, I think that was its most important role, right? The Soviet Union became, and then later the People's Republic of China, became a very important alternative source of finance, um, as compared to the Bretton Woods institutions, uh, as compared to the United States or the United Kingdom. Um, So I would say that the fear that was supposedly, you know, I'm putting, you know, I'm not accepting that the Cold War was based on the fear of communism Because there was no communism, right? It was. uh, uh, But I would say that what was the what the fear that was organized. um, The the main consequence of the Cold War was an enormous shift in spending on militaries, right? Uh, Both in the United States, in Europe, in the former Soviet Union, in China, in India you know, massive militaries were put put into place, again, for the defense of national sovereignty, right? Uh, uh, so that's probably the greatest consequence of the Cold War is the enormous shift uh, in um, planetary spending on militaries, which, of course, benefited capital, right? Uh, ca- you know, the enormous wealth that was made from supplying those arms. But if there, was, if there was any fear, and of course there was some fear from the, from the perspective of the global hegemon, which is the United States uh, and uh, its cousins in Europe, was that, is there an alternative model that is being posed in terms of what the state is capable of doing, mm-hmm. right? Like, could we demand uh, more from the state, Right, and the United States, of course, is infamous for having the weakest, one of the weakest welfare states in the rich world. Right, Mm -hmm. and they still can't agree on family leave. Right, there's still zero weeks of paid family leave in the United States. Um, So I think the fear of the Soviet Union was a was a, a fear that workers may demand more. Right, and we saw that even the. You know, we know that whatever compromises were made between capital uh, and the state towards workers in the United States after World War II for that brief period from 45 to the late 1960s, right, um, uh, are the basis of whatever gains workers inside the United States have ever made, right, in terms of unionization, uh different kinds of social programs, et cetera, as well as the rest of the world, right? Like these different welfare states uh, in um, the rich world and their very poorer um, versions in the in the poor world.
3: We wanted to also like shift now, like to the migration politics specifically, like of this like new uh, post-colonial, uh, post-colonial world order, um because like it seemed to us that you kind of like um, tackle like one of the like kind of common senses in which we live that like migration is you know like something that was like a stable dimension of the whole world history, and you kind of like seem to make like a counter argument to that that like migration is like and also like the acceleration of like migration is like the outcome and effect of like a new political order that you call the post colonial new world. And what we wanted to ask you um, was that you write um, in your book that transition from imperialism to nationalism is marked by imperial exit controls to national entry controls. It seems that you are hesitating because you put these words national and imperial uh, into parentheses. Um, And it seems to me that you are implying both a break and the continuity at the same time. And the break like seems to happen in the structure of governmentality, while the continuity takes shape in the existence of a racialized form of labor. And we wanted to ask: like, is there like there is like a transition that you kind of like suggest to which is like from the slave to coolie to migrant? And we were like absolutely struck by this kind of like invocation of a lineage, you know um between these like free kind of subjectivities uh, could you explain this transition a little bit more to us
0: yeah what a brilliant question i i love that question you framed it so nicely um uh so i do you're correct that there is some ambiguity in the sense of is there a break or is there not a break between imperial rule and national rule um And I think that uh, where there is clearly a break is a different kinds of controls, right? Imperial states were primarily controlled by preventing people from leaving their territories, um, all the while bringing more and more people into their territories, either through territorial expansion, incorporating new people as their territories expand, or for example, through the slave trade, right, bringing millions of people into the territories that they control in order to exploit their labor, right? Uh, national states, on the other hand, other than the ones that we um, see as uh, illegitimate, right, as totalitarian, largely do not have exit controls, but all of them have entry controls, Right. So that is a clear break and a clear kind of shift in system. But where there is continuity is that all states are interested in controlling people's mobility, right? There is no freedom of mobility under state rule. Either you're going to be controlled from leaving or from entering, right? But you're absolutely right that they create different subjectivities, right? And they and it's different forms of ruling, right, in terms of how a state... Um, justifies or normalizes those different kinds of controls. Under imperial rule, of course um, uh, social the social construction of ideas of race were absolutely central to the operation of imperial, right Like the main category of imperial rule, the main binary code or negative duality of imperialism is the negative duality between European and native, right? The native was the subject of empire uh, whose labor could be enslaved, could be expropriated um, uh, legitimately, right, for their own good, right? Uh, they needed to learn how to labor uh, because they were, you know, all the, all the racist stereotypes of lazy, uncivilized, um, et cetera right? So imperial states, op- their racism operated on this kind of model of improvement, right? You're, you know These common lands that some people held, what a waste, right? They should be, why aren't they commodified and brought into you know, a system of profit making, right? So we're going to improve the land, but also we're going to improve the people living on the land in order to make them into civilized subjects, which means the proletariat, right? You're not civilized unless you are uh, following some kind of uh, work ethic, right? That you are laboring for your benefit, you know, all those kinds of uh, classic European philosophical uh, treatises. Um, but under nationalism, under the post-colonial new world order, the main binary is not in Europe, European native. The main binary now is national migrant. Right. Either you're a, um, a member of the nation or you're a migrant. And and um, if you're a migrant, then you then again, your rights as well as uh, the remuneration that you get for your labor is going to be very different than that of the national subject. Right. The national citizen. So, um I think that where we see again, this is a continuity. There's no break here, right? It's not like all of a sudden in 1949 that it was like, okay, we've we've ended the project of civilization. We've now moved on to the project of nationalization. Uh, there was obviously a continuity, and the continuity is is you know quite simple, actually, right? That uh, the rich world states uh, gained their wealth uh, through the uh, enormous expropriation and exploitation of of colonized people, uh, and expropriated people uh, like slave, enslaved people from Africa, uh, and they shared the tiny bits of those benefits with those groups of workers that they made white. Right? They reluctantly had to incorporate some workers um, that you know were seen to be European. Um, who they despised, right? Empires despised workers in Europe as much as they despised them anywhere else. But part of the kind of political operation of imperialism was to incorporate this group of workers into the imperial project as whites, right? As co-Europeans, as co-white people. So those kinds of, you know, that, that imperial creation of whiteness was in place by the 19th century, fully in place by the 19th century, right? Which is precisely the period when we see a transition towards national sovereignties, right? Starting in the late 19th century, and then fully in place by the end of World War you know, II in the 1960s. That, that continued, right? And so migration controls, as we know, are ideological, Right. And they're ideological in two ways. First of all, we're not all equally governed by them. Right. Depending on what passport you have, you are more or less governed by different uh, immigration controls, uh, certainly in regards to, uh, you know, freedom of mobility. Uh, But secondly, uh, they're also ideological because people keep moving. Right, immigration controls should never be understood as primarily resulting in the in the in the ending of mobil, in the ending of actual people's movements. People keep moving. People are moving more today. There are more people moving today than there were in the 1980s. So as immigration controls have become even more draconian, even more murderous. More and more people are moving. So immigration controls are ideological in the sense that they're not about stopping people from entering nation states. They're about stopping people from entering nation states with rights, right? The rights of permanent residency, the rights of citizenship. Um, So we can see this kind of similar model to imperialism, right? That by categorizing you as a migrant, we leave you in a place where you have less rights than others. You have less, um, uh, your wages are much lower, your working conditions are much poorer, uh, and you're despised. You're despised by the the rest of the people living in the places that you work. They see you as their greatest threat, right? (laughs) They're roosters. They see you as their greatest threat rather than the state that is governing both of your lives, right? So in that sense, you can kind of see how racism continues to operate as an ideology uh, to the furtherance of both state power and to the profitability of capital.
3: So like the whole like kind of like big thesis of your book as like the separation of migrants um, from natives and the other way around as like being like this kind of like new hegemonic uh, global political order, Created this like inversion of like the kind of like normative order of like nativeness and the native like formal, like the kind of like subject that can be colonized, and now like this like subject that claims to be completely um shut off from everyone else and claiming like rights to like land. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, how do you see like the the new um, like right-wing movements that we are just witnessing like in the last like 20 years um, are there like you know more to be perceived as like an intensification of that or do we have here like a new global politics arising with them
0: i think um the way that i've understood it is that it's a hardening of nationalism right and it's hardening around the idea of the native right Uh, in part because uh, the idea of the national may itself be too, uh, too open. Right? Like we already know how close the idea of the nation is. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the, the, the idea that I could ever be understood as a real Canadian or a real American is hard to believe. Right. Uh, but so for some people, the idea of the nation is still, is still too open-ended and particularly in regards to citizenship, right? Like I, you know, was born in India was able to get citizenship in Canada and the United States. Right. So for, for some people that is too much, right? That the, the idea of the nation and citizenship is too open-ended. So we do definitely see um, calls for, uh, shutting down access to citizenship and we and to immigration uh, that comes with rights, right? as landed resident, like landed permanent residents. Um, but the category of native is an even more closed category than the category of the nation, right? Uh, you know, some ideas of nationhood, particularly liberal ideas of nationhood, can encompass different, um, you know, uh, Differently racialized people. But the idea of the native is so closed, right? That it is um, a kind of quintessential racialized category, right? In terms of the way that you enter the idea of... the Enter the category of the native is through genealogy, right? It is through blood. And the other important aspect of the idea of the native, right? Of autochthonous ideas is territory, right? So blood and soil come together in the category of the uh, autochthonous native in ways that uh, um, even the idea of the nation cannot encompass, right? Uh, And so what I see happening, and certainly you see this in the discourses of nationalism around the world, is the claim that anti-immigrant politics are done in the name of protecting the native, right? And that the immigrant... Is now being re-understood, reconceptualized not just as a migrant but as a colonizer. So it's ironic, you know, uncanny that in a post-colonial new world order of nation states, we're reverting to categories that were important governing categories for imperial states, right? Uh, the, but now it's kind of its inverse: the native uh, is the one that gets home rule, right? The native gets sovereignty, the native's territory. Um, um, is the native is the sovereign over national territory, right? So this kind of this uh, weird turning on its head of a kind of Wilsonian and then Rooseveltian kind of idea of national self-determination, right? Now it's national self-determination for natives right? uh, and, and everyone else... Um, uh, uh, is rightfully, legitimately, justifiably uh, stripped of their rights uh, and uh, kept in conditions of unfreedom uh, that would be seen as illegitimate for everyone else. So it's weird, right? It's just—it's just a weird—it's <laughs> just a weird set of occurrences that's taking place. You know, when you see, you know, from. Uh, you know, Marine Le Pen talking about the natives of France being colonized by African migrants uh, to indigenous rights movements in the United States talking about Asian and black settler colonists, right? It's like, what, what, what has nationalism done to our consciousness uh, and what has this you know, post-colonial system of nation states done to our sense of, of justice, that we believe that there is that we must remain separated from those people who were brought to the United States, for instance, as enslaved people or as indentured contract laborers or present-day migrants who, you know, it's basically, let me put it in another way, I see the hardening of nationalism as a response. to the obvious obvious connections that are being made more and more transparent, right? As our connectivity across the world is being made more and more transparent, right? Like we can't even build a car without workers in Taiwan building computer chips, right? Like there's an absolute connectivity, right? We're not going to get our Christmas present uh, because the ship's you know, moving products from China are not arriving to the port of Los Angeles quickly enough. As we see this connectivity more and more, we, the politics are hardening to an even more kind of limited notion of the nation, which revolves around the native subject.
2: Yeah. uh, Let's bring this to how we get out of this. (laughs) I think, um, That's that's sort of how we um, wanted to wrap up the remainder of our conversation because obviously a lot of the injunctions we are making in this text are not simply interpreting the past, but also trying to chart a path towards a different form of organizing the world, um, one in which the sort of like one in which we can reclaim decolonization as an emancipatory struggle that does not result in national self-determination, but a different form of organizing ourselves. Um, can, you, can you tell us a bit about how you see that?
0: Well, um, I would say that you know, the first thing that we really need to do is acknowledge the connections that we have to one another Uh, particularly as workers, right? I would say that acknowledging our connection to each other as people who produce the world's wealth uh, is an important uh, way of organizing ourselves and to understand that the society that we live in uh, encompasses our entire planet, right? We need a planetary consciousness of ourselves as the producers of wealth uh, and that the wealth that we produce ought to be held in common, right? So to me, the political, like, you know, again, we know that these separate spheres of activity, like the way that we theorize spheres of activity as political, economic, social, cultural, that this is a false kind of separation as well, right? It's all part of this. You know, we have a capitalist economy. We have a capitalist culture. We have a capitalist social system. Right, a capitalist political system. Uh, similarly, I call for um, the struggle for a planetary commons. And the basis of living in a commons as commoners, what that means, right, um, is the kind of material basis for the commons is that no one can be excluded from enjoying the commons. Right, uh, there are no ex- there are no rights of exclusion in the commons. So, unlike citizenship rights, right, where we can exclude the migrant, right, we can't. There is, you know, the basis of the commons, which would absolutely transform our sense of self, our sense of others, our entire kind of cultural uh, understanding of life. What happens when we can't exclude people? when they have just as much power to be in a place as we do, and that, and that that's the social system that we establish and we fight to continue, right? Like, I think the planetary commons would be a, 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 a world without classes and without states, right? Classes and states are like evil twins, right? Like, you can't have one without the other. Right. Ruling classes make states. States protect ruling classes. Right. So, uh, the, you know, a call for a planetary commons is an anti-capitalist project. It is a no borders project. Uh, it is, uh, you know, a environmental justice project. But we have to create, you know, So the difference from the commons and these kind of other liberal projects like national sovereignty or social democracy or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is that uh, we imagine ourselves at a planetary level. We imagine ourselves as the creators of wealth on the planet, uh, as well as all living beings like we and and we um, don't rely on the expropriation or exploitation of others to live, right? That needs to be the fundamental basis for continued life on this planet for human beings and for all other living beings, right? And so I feel like we're at a moment where we should be able to see the failures of the present day system. You know, and many of us do see bits of the failure like we see we see the failure of capitalism, we see the failure of You know, extractivism, uh, uh, we see the failure of immigration controls. But is there a way of putting it all together so that we can actually create an entire world for ourselves?
3: Also, like to follow on that, um, you are also like personally engaging in uh, commons projects. but uh, which we saw also on your website. Can you like explain that a little bit more like in which ways you engage in like making comments today?
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm involved in a project uh, uh, with my partner, Gay Chan, uh, as well as uh, many others, most of them unknown, uh, called Eating in Public. And eating in public is a project where we try and carve out a little space within the capitalist, nation state, system uh, in which we perform the commons, right? Like where we say, here is a space from which no one can be excluded um, and that we are all collectively responsible for maintaining, right? Uh, So it's an experiment uh, in a way to allow people to imagine such a world to see themselves acting in this world and then to see themselves wanting this world expanded, right? So we set up free stores, free gardens. We have an anarchist recycling bin on the island of Oahu, which is a pathetic, has a pathetic recycling system. Um, uh, We have a seed sharing stations. We have weed eating stations. We show people how to identify and eat the weeds that are growing around them. Um, and what we've noticed throughout this project are two things. One is people love it, right? People are like, oh, I don't have to go to the garden store to buy my plant. I can just get it here for free from someone who cleaned up their garden and left it here. Right. That's great. Right. Like, so just imagining yourself outside of markets as the only source for what you need to live in the world. Um And then the other thing that we've noticed is that all of these systems absolutely depend on the stranger, right? This is not these kind of like, I'm creating my community, right? With all these people that I like or the people that live in this neighborhood, right? It's like, it's the stranger. And it's often the stranger that people fear um, that actually maintains the system, right? So for example, when we first set up our first free store, uh, it was in front of a, a house that, a part of which we were renting, and the landlord lived in the house, uh, the main part of the house. And he, when we set up the free store, he was like, oh, I don't know, you know, what about all those homeless people that are, you know, going to come, they're just going to take everything, like you're leave it out, and they'll just take it all. And it's like, well, let's just see, right. And what what became quite evident is that no one was taking everything. We even created a free money box, right? Where people could leave their money. And we found that even in the free money box, it was never completely emptied. And we would have experiments, like we would leave, you know, like $5.80 in the free box, free money box. And someone might take $2, someone might take a little, like no one took everything. So that was really interesting. And then and then the the key is once you find something at the free store that you want then you're like okay I'm I'm totally on board with this now and some stranger brought this here like I don't know who this was right and I don't want to know who they are I don't have to like everybody on the planet I don't I can even despise people on the planet But I can't exclude them. That's the commons, right? So, how do you get to how do you learn to live in the commons is eating in public?
2: Very cool. It really uh, turns upside down the rational egoist model of the human being, right? (laughs) It really undermines it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Upon which, like, all of the I don't know, state-centered and capitalist European philosophy is founded on this figure of the rational, egoist human who will take everything for their benefit. Yeah, And you show in practice how that is simply not the case. People, given the opportunity, will not necessarily seek self-interest to its very end. And that's beautiful. That's really nice.
0: Yeah, because we could, you know, put it another way, which is to say that European, like, Philosophies in the age of capitalism all put forward ways of being in the world that mirrored what uh, imperialists and capitalists were doing, which was take, taking everything, <laughs> and then and then and then saying, and then saying that that's human nature.